Good morning. The passage this morning is Acts 2, 14 through 21, and you can find that on page 910 of your pew Bibles. It's Peter's sermon at Pentecost. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. Lord, we want to thank you for all you've done for us today. Thank you for this church and all the parishioners. Thank you for the great country we live in and the opportunity to vote and and choose who our leaders shall be. Lord, we want to thank you for just all the gifts that you continually depose, give us. And Lord, most of all, we want to thank you for your word, that we have that available in the Bible and we can read every day. Thank you. Please be seated. In 1834, a man was born in England that God would sovereignly use to shift not only the country of England, but also the world around. This man was known and is known by us as Charles Haddon Spurgeon. A man who would go on to become, as many describe him, the prince of preachers. Maybe the greatest to ever fill a pulpit on any continent. In the height of his ministry in the 1860s, he moved his congregation to the Metropolitan Tabernacle there in London. It was a large building. It could hold 5,000 seated and another 1,000 for standing room. It it, it had an elevated platform and, and then the congregation was below him and would rise to the back. The congregation would also up in the balcony as much as two or three tiers high and would go all the way around the entire building, including being directly behind him and could see what was happening. Mr. Spurgeon would stand on a lower platform and would lead the congregation in singing. And then when the time came for the preaching of the word, his pulpit that he would stand and preach from was elevated above that lower platform and he would turn and he would climb one of two staircases, 15 steps, slowly, laboriously, under the weight of responsibility 
that was before him to proclaim the word of God to his people. But also knowing that there were those in his congregation that would take down word for word everything that he had said, would send him a manuscript of that, that he would edit the next day, and then it would go throughout all of England. It would be printed and and put upon books, and it would go around the world. And tens of thousands of people would read his sermon that day. Would use it even at times for their family devotions and discussion. This weight that was before him caused him, as he would take his steps, 15 stairs, steps up to the top of his platform, to say quietly to himself as he went up, I believe in the Holy Spirit. 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 Knowing that if it, that sermon was going to be used in any way, no matter the giftings he had, which were many, at least one of them being that he didn't need a microphone to address all 6,000 of his people before him. His voice was strong enough. But he knew if the Holy Spirit did not anoint the preaching of the word, no matter the gift, it would be powerless to change any heart within that room, much less around the world. Undoubtedly, God anointed Mr. Spurgeon with a unique gift to preach. But gifts without the power of the Spirit are unable to affect the heart of any man, no matter the fervor. We have in our Bibles this morning a text that is certainly the first sermon that Peter has preached under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And yet this also could be described as the first sermon of the Christian church. A sermon which has been read and studied countless more times than any sermon that Mr. Spurgeon ever preached. And we might even say, and I think we can say with great confidence, a sermon which has done more to advance the kingdom of Christ than all of Mr. Spurgeon's sermons combined. A sermon that calls its hearers both original and for us even today, as we will study this first part of the sermon this morning, to listen and respond to the word of God rightly handled. A sermon, as every sermon should, that begins and is built upon the word of God, declaring the glory of God and pressing upon all hearers to respond to the message in one way or another. Tom Boyd read for us this first opening of the sermon where he goes and, and, and takes as his text Joel 2, if you will. The first section of this sermon is just that. It's just the first section. You'll notice in verse 22 he goes on to explain more things about the text that he uses from Joel 2. He draws in other references in verse 25. He expounds upon the work of Christ And verse 29 and following, he wraps up his sermon in verse 36. And then there's this response that takes place following. And and we'll look at those in the coming weeks. But I think even by taking this first section, verse 14 through 21, it would be helpful for us this morning if we see it as sort of a a mini analysis of a sermon or a, a mini sermon, if you will. He has an introduction. 
He has a text. He even has a call of application or response. He uses Joel 2 as the text. He calls them to response by way of Joel 2 in verse 21. He offers a, a word of introduction in verse 14 and 15. And so we'll take it this morning and study in that way. We'll begin first by looking at this introduction that Peter uses in verse 14 and 15. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. You may remember if you were here a couple of weeks ago, that after the giving of the Holy Spirit, the beginning of chapter 2 of Acts, there was a number of responses to the giving of the Holy Spirit. And one of them was in verse 13. There was this mocking. Surely these men are just drunk. And here, Peter addresses their obstinance to the gifting of the Holy Spirit. I think it's interesting to note that whether those that were mocking in verse 13 were serious in the rejection of the work of the Holy Spirit or just are in jest, Peter is seizing the opportunity to use their obstinance as a door to speaking into their lives. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I hate to preach on hard things. Preachers don't like preaching on hard things. We would prefer everybody to stream out the back door in our pride and say, oh, that was a wonderful sermon. I agree with everything that you said. And so I would prefer, let's just jump over certain portions of Scripture. That's the fastest way to get everybody to like it. That's not what Peter's doing here. Even in our own personal lives, we often spend more time dodging the dissenters Or the critics, or at least the difficult subjects, because we don't like that tension that often fills the air. We all know we're going to turkey dinner in coming weeks. Or Christmas dinner, and we know there's, if you go that certain route, that conversation, the whole cut the tension with a knife. We avoid these things, and yet Peter does not. And the same should not be for us. Notice, he doesn't do it with just slamming it in their face. He does it with a a bit of wit. These men are are not drunk. It's it's only 9 a.m. in the morning. Who gets drunk at 9 a.m. in the morning? But he does it with intentionality as well. He knows the truth of what he's about to say. He's convinced that what he's about to say is the truth of God's word. And he isn't going to, to beat around the bush. He's going to Directly get to the point. He lifts up his voice, the text says. Notice he's calling them to attention. Give ear to my words. In a sense, this command to listen to Peter is the undertow of every faithful gospel preacher. I trust you didn't, you didn't get up this morning with an extra hour of sleep to come and hear some motivational message. You didn't come to hear some self-help thing. Some psychological dribble that would 
make you feel better about yourself or follow your heart. No. You came to hear from God through His Word, through the instrument of fallible man, but chosen and enabled by God through the Spirit to deliver the Word with clarity. And that's what the preacher does, is he stands and says, listen to this. Give ear to this. Be arrested by this, if you will. Don't just act like it's something else. No, you must hear this and respond to it in some way, shape, or form. On Saturday nights, I've gotten into the habit of telling, as I remember, my children. When I can remember to tell them that what they're about to do that next Sunday morning is possibly the most important part of their week. They are, they're going to go, they're going to sit with the people of God and they're going to hear the word of God. Is there anything greater than that? It's unlike the reading of your Bible in the morning, which is hearing from the word of God. But God has uniquely created and empowered by himself the preaching of the word to be unlike anything else in the Christian life. And we should be those who are coming prepared to give ear to it and to respond. So what will you do with what you hear this morning? What will you do with the words of Holy Scripture? I pray that, as you do as well, that these, these words are not my own. But it is our responsibility, whether from the pulpit or the pew, to give ear, to listen and respond to the word of God declared. Peter stands with boldness. This idea of standing with the eleven isn't just that he was sitting and standing, but that he was, he was standing, taking responsibility to address. And he calls them to hear him. Look at verse 16 through 21 with me. He begins after his short introduction by taking them to a text of Holy Scripture. He, he, he uses the word of God as the platform for the proclamation of the message. Peter's word is not give ear to what I'm going to say, but, but give ear to these words. And these words are from Joel chapter 2, verse 28 through 32. Whenever the New Testament quotes an Old Testament passage, we would be amiss not to go to that passage. So spend some time going to your left. You will find Joel chapter 2 if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you on page 761. If you see Hosea, go to your right. If you see Amos, go to your left. Joel chapter 2, it's helpful for us to gain an understanding, a limited understanding, we don't have time to see it in depth, of what has transpired all the way up to verse 28 through 32, which is what Peter quotes and acts to. So by, by way of a very quick summary, we see this invasion of locusts that takes place in Joel chapter 1. And it is upon the, the people of Israel even, 
there's this this time of of, of great suffering. In chapter 2 of Joel, verses 1 and 2, we see that the day of the Lord is coming and that it is very near. You see that in verse 1. For the day of the Lord is coming, it is near, it is a day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. This is a day of justice that is coming, is what Joel is foreshadowing. It's not a happy day. It's a day where the the king of kings, it's a day of the one who has all power to execute justice will do just that. Look at verse 11 of Joel 2. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great... He who executes his word is powerful for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome who can endure it. It's set up as this day by which no one will be able to stand in justice. And yet it's also a day of mercy. Look at verse 12 and 13. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. The Old Testament prophets, in fact, all of God's people in the Old Testament, the character of God that they knew well, maybe more than any other character, is the character of Exodus 34. That's reflected here in verse 13. That he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love to those who will turn to the Lord. The Lord who is jealous for his land and has pity on his people. You see that in verse 18. The Lord who promises in verse 19 through 26 of Joel 2. Blessings upon the land that will restore the years of judgment as depicted by the locusts in chapter 1. Culminating in the blessing of his presence in the midst of his people in verse 27. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And even within his people by the pouring out of his spirit. Not only is he going to be with his people. He'd be in his people. And we get to verse 28 through 32 of Joel 2. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons, your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. Blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the text that Peter quotes in Acts 2. And the text that he quotes is in the face of judgment upon the nations. Look at 32b. 
And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there. What we must clearly understand and see and realize is that the prophecy of the Holy Spirit being poured out on God's people in Joel 2 is in the context of the Lord's power to execute judgment upon those who will not repent. Even Israel, if they won't repent, and certainly the nations of the world in rebellion against him. So when when Peter quotes Joel 2, What we have to realize is that what he is seeing in the gifting of the Holy Spirit in the preceding verses of Acts, Acts 1 through 13, he's seeing that as a fulfillment of the Holy Spirit being given as foretold here in Joel 2. He even, you might note, equates the Spirit's giving the ability to speak in tongues different languages A language which many did not previously know of the mighty words of God. You see that in Acts 2.11. With the prophecy in Joel 2 of sons and daughters prophesying. He's seeing that the many languages being spoken to declare the mighty works of God. Is equating with the prophecy of Joel 2. This should tell us something about the nature of the gift of prophecy. And the nature of the gift of tongues. Peter actually sees them together happening. What is a prophet? Well, a prophet is a messenger of God. We, we needed the prophetic ministry of Jesus Christ. He's our prophet, priest, and king. We who were ignorant of God, we needed Christ to give us instruction for a right and good relationship with God, as J.I. Packer says. Those who were prophets had a knowledge of God That God revealed to them in order to declare this knowledge of God to the people. You have here in Joel, Joel uh, holding in tension two parts of the Bible. He's holding this great prophetic ministry of Moses and the greater prophet Christ all in tension. Why do I say that? Well, let's go in our Bibles a little further back in the Old Testament. For more help in what is happening here with this dream dreams and visions and prophecy. And how it it relates with the outpouring of the Spirit. Let's go to Numbers chapter 11. To your left in your Bible yet again. Numbers chapter 11. Seventy elders are... Appointed to aid Moses in the second part of Numbers chapter 11. And in verse 24, Moses goes out and tells the people the words of the Lord. That's what a prophet does, tells people the words of the Lord. And he gathered 70 men, the text says, of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent, that is the tabernacle. And then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him. And took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the seventy elders. 
And as soon as the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Well, let's continue. What happens later on in the passage? Well, what happens is, they, these 70 stop prophesying, and yet two that were not part of the 70, they're outside the camp, one named Eldad, verse 26, and one, day, one named Medad, in verse 26. And the Spirit rests on them, and, and they also begin to prophesy. And some young man comes running into the camp and saying, Moses, telling Moses, Hey, these two guys are out there. They're prophesying. You should shut them down. What does Moses tell them? Verse 29. Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets that the Lord would just put his spirit on them. See the bit of tension Joel is holding here. This this desire by the great prophet Moses that the spirit of God would be all upon all of God's people, not just a select few. And yet Peter, seeing the proclamation of Joel as being fulfilled in the gifting of the Holy Spirit, Joel looking forward to the day when the Spirit would be given upon all of God's people. Let's continue in the story in in Numbers 11. We see Miriam and Aaron in opposition to Moses in chapter 12. There's this contest, if you will, that takes place as they're in opposition to him. And, And the Lord calls them to account. Verse 3 of chapter 12. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three came out, and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward and he said, Hear my words, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision, I speak with him in a dream. That should ring as to what's happening in the proclamation of Joel 2 and Acts 2. Verse 7, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly And not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against him. Against them. And he departed. Joel holding tension. This great prophet Moses. But the greater prophet Christ that was to come. The one who would... Be with the Lord. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Christ would tell us. There's this oneness. And even Hebrews chapter 1 tells us this. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers, how? By the prophets. But in these last days, and that's what Peter shifts in Joel, from Joel 2 to Acts 2, he says in these last days, meaning now, the days following the ascension of Christ, the days that are, are previewing the return of Christ, in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. Peter would go on in Second Peter chapter 1, 16 through 21, all the way to Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1. 
to talk of the fact that there's a, a, a new and better day. That there's no prophecy of scripture that comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then he calls us to think about false prophets. Those who would speak not in the power of the Holy Spirit. Those who would twist the message. Destructive heresies. Denying the master who brought them. What about dreams? Well, there's false prophets who would use dreams and twist those. Jude chapter, uh, Jude 1, only one chapter in Jude. Jude verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Well, now when we're looking at Acts 2, we're, we're thinking, okay, I'm getting a better understanding of this pouring out of the Spirit. But I haven't prophesied. I haven't seen visions. I haven't dreamed dreams. Maybe you have. I haven't. I've certainly dreamt dreams. I don't know what they mean. Does that mean I'm not a Christian? Not at all. This is, this is not the evidence of Christian, Christianity if you do these things. That's not what he's saying at all. He's actually saying that this is a, an age now. The age of the church where all of God's people, Christians, believers, young men, old men, male servants, female servants, this sociological overhaul, it's not just for some, it's for all who will call upon Christ, will be able to have, through the presence of the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, a knowledge of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We'll be able to know God. We'll be able to know His Word. Christ who inaugurated a new covenant with his people as foretold in Jeremiah 31. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That is what it means to be a Christian. To have your sin forgiven by the blood of Christ. And not remembered anymore. Not whether or not someone is prophesying or dreaming dreams. We, the church, now have the weighty responsibility of the prophets... To bear witness to the world of the saving grace and coming judgment of the eternal and holy God. We are, in the words of a commentator, under the obligation incumbent upon prophets to bear witness to our generation. But we don't have to wonder what the word is. It's right here. It's on your lap. That is the word that we've been given to declare to the nations. Mr. Robertson has a commentary on the book of Joel. This is what he says. Quote, Though prophecy as a gift, communicating the very word of God, now manifests itself exclusively in the completed prophetic scriptures of the Old and the New Testaments, the prophetic function of every believer in Christ continues. As every believer possesses gifts related to the offices of priest and king, so every believer also is endowed with abilities to communicate the truth of God in his speaking. Men and women, young and old, rich and poor, servant and master, 
all may function prophetically as they speak forth the truth of God. Well, what about 19 and 20 of Acts 2? Okay, I'm understanding. The Holy Spirit comes upon the believer in salvation. He gives us the ability to behold the wonder of Christ. He gives us an understanding of his word, the knowledge of him, the ability then to proclaim that to the nations. Gifting even some with the ability to, to, to proclaim it in a different language. But what do I do with 19 and 20? I haven't seen these wonders like that. Well, I think you must begin with this idea of the word and in 19. And I will show wonders in the heavens above. Meaning 17 and 18 seems to be that which is fulfilled at Pentecost. And yet 19 and 20 seems to be that which is partially fulfilled and yet more still to come. Peter connects the wonders in verse 19 to Jesus in verse 22. So whether we see all of verse 19 and 20 as fulfilled in Christ, or as partially fulfilled in Christ with more to come, what we can say is that the day of the Lord has come and that he, the anointed ascended Christ, is sovereignly over all the nations. Verse 20, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And yet there's this continued tension in this day of now and yet more to come. That when Christ returns as the great judge of Revelation 19 to make the final determination of one's eternal state, heaven or hell, that his display of authority and judgment will be a wonder like we've not seen and that will strike fear in the heart of the most proud and confident person like supernatural occurrences and nature that can only be described as from the hand of God. Things such as the ten plagues in Exodus. The proud heart of Pharaoh. Seeing rivers turn to blood. Swarms of flies and locusts and frogs. Striking fear into his heart. Whatever the aberrations are of nature. We, when Christ return, will bow the knee. Every heart, no matter how proud, will recognize that his display of authority is a wonder like we've never seen. We can and many have. Spend all the time that we would like this morning to argue how to interpret verse 19 and 20. And I grant there is a need to study. That's why I moved this passage from last week to this. There's a need to study and understand and know, but let's not miss the point. These verses 17 through 20, no matter how you might determine to understand them, are meant to be a platform. They're just a springboard to the truth of verse 21. That's where Peter, that's where Joel is trying to get us to. Because remember the context of Joel 2. It's in the context of judgment to come. Joel is moving us to verse 32. Peter is moving us to verse 21. So let's go there. Verse 21, the call to respond. I didn't read the writings of C.S. Lewis growing up. But I've been reading them more now. And they've been helpful to me. You have in verse 19 and 20 a picture of horror, of majesty, of wonder. 
that is beyond the human ability to comprehend or stand under. And yet you have in verse 21 this grace, this call, this invitation. Lewis puts it this way in the 8th chapter of The Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sadness will be no more. When he shows his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we'll have spring again. You'll understand when you see him. This is Beaver talking. But will we see him? Asked Susan. Daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. I'm supposed to take you to where you'll meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is, is he a man? Asked Lucy. Aslan, a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. He's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I feel quite nervous about meeting a lion. That you will and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If anyone can stand before Aslan without being afraid, they are either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Didn't you hear what Mrs. Beaver told you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. The Apostle Paul picks up on this idea. Uh, verse 21 in Romans 10, verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The horror of verse 20 is held in tension by the call of response in verse 21. The call is now. The call is today to all men and women. Turn to the Lord and be saved. It is your sinful rebellion against Christ that will render your verdict guilty unless you in faith trust the shed blood of Christ to be that which covers your sin. I remember, I don't know how old I was, maybe nine, ten Lied to my parents. It's, it's one of the first times I remember in having to go to my parents and confessing sin. I'm sure there was countless times before that. But I remember laying awake late one night, knowing I needed to go tell them that I'd lied to them, and fearing how they would respond. Well, now I'm a father with a nine or ten year old. And now the flip happens. You lay awake at night hoping your child will not fear to come to talk to you about their sin. Knowing that you want to help them. You want to help relieve that burden. Is this not what happens to us? We have in our sinful rebellion a fear of confessing our sin and coming in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ. When in the hardness of our heart, we will not submit and respond to Christ. We fear how he might respond. He'll destroy us. And yet, what does he desire? Come. Call. And you will be saved. You must submit to his lordship and repentance and faith or ultimately your submission will be brought about by his sovereign force on that final day of judgment. That's the tension there. 
And I want you to note that this day of the Lord is is a day of salvation. Anyone, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So have you called on Christ? Not have you been baptized, not have you walked the aisle or prayed a prayer, but have you called on Christ to save you from your sin? Have you responded to that gift of grace and faith by repenting of your sin and following him in obedience? And let me tell you, God's mighty hand of saving grace is never short to save. There is not a laundry list of sin, no matter how big, that is unable to be covered by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Only those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Note everyone. There is no one who is too far in their sin that is outside the ability to be saved by his grace. If what would prevent you from trusting Christ this morning, today, is your laundry list of sin that you couldn't possibly fathom God could forgive. Let me tell you, he already knows about all of it. He's well aware of it. And he sent his son Christ in love to die for it. There's no list long enough that he couldn't cover. He says that the blood of Christ is sufficient to save. Then it is sufficient to save. You must believe it. How will you know? How will I know? Maybe you're sitting here this morning saying, how do I know if I have called upon the name of the Lord? How do I know if I'm saved? Well, the Holy Spirit, for one, according to this text, will be within you. What's that going to look like? We could go through all sorts of texts, but let me just say a couple of things. One, you will find your affection for sin waning, dying out, and your desire for knowing God growing. You will find that the Bible becomes precious and meaningful. You will find obedience to Christ's commands not as burdensome or inhibiting to your life, but as delightful and freeing. You will find that your relationship with other Christians is uniquely close. You will find that prayer in times of question or needed wisdom becomes a go-to. You will find you hope in this, your hope in this world fading and your joy in the heaven that awaits exponentially increasing. All because the Spirit has regenerated you, made you alive in Jesus Christ. Can these things be said of you this morning? Can they be said of your heart? If they can, all glory be to Christ. Because those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, we could argue the the text. Well, does, does that mean anybody can do it? Yeah, that's what it says. Does that mean we can line up everybody in the entire world and say, say this and you'll be saved? Well, let me just tell you, they won't say it in their pride and rebellion. Just like I wouldn't say it in my pride and rebellion and you wouldn't say it in your pride and rebellion before Christ. We won't name the name of Christ. We won't call upon him and save. No. Me and me only. Until God in his mercy extends grace. Softens us. Opens our eyes. But it's calling upon the name of the Lord. It is Jesus Christ. The Lord. The one who came from heaven. 
took on the likeness of flesh, lived a life of perfection, took your sin, if you will but repent and trust him in saving faith, your sin upon the cross, took your death, took the guilt that you deserve to bear. In exchange, he gives you his righteousness. He died on the cross. He rose from the grave. And that rising from the grave, conquering sin and death. And therefore, for those that are in Christ, and Christ in them, the hope of glory, we have hope that we too will rise from the dead. That life for the Christian is that life eternally. And there's a a, a blip in the middle. There's a going asleep of physical nature. And yet the soul never dies for the Christian. And we will be with Christ for all of eternity and one day even have a new body in perfect harmony with God yet again. As we were designed to be in Genesis 1 and now through Christ, we have that hope. Is that your hope? This is Peter's opening text. All with the the desire to, to see the obstinance of men turn to Christ in saving faith. Because as we will see in the coming weeks in verse 22 through 36 and following, he's going to take this passage and turn it to the heart and say, this Jesus who came and lived amongst you, this is the one, the one that you delivered up to be killed. This is the one who, if you will turn to him, you will be saved. Well, the truth is still today. If we will turn, we will be saved. And that is a great grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is with joy to know that the saving grace of Jesus Christ is mighty to save, was mighty to save then for this first crowd gathered around the preaching of the word and it is mighty to save now. And Father, On top of this is just the joy of knowing that as saved believers, we have the knowledge of God available to every one of us. The Spirit dwelling in us. And what a joy to also know that you've also given us a ministry to message to the world the power and glory of of Jesus Christ on the cross and the empty tomb, the ascended Christ and the promise of the return. That you you gift us the ability. You join, you empower the work of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would help us to be more faithful to proclaim that gospel to be faithful to the ministry you've called us to. It is with joy, Father, that we have had a time to open your word and we ask that you would bless now our time around your table. In the precious and holy name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.